This is Sam Swartz and Rachel Fields with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. More than a thousand workers at CNH Industrial, a maker of agricultural and construction equipment, went on strike today at two plants in Wisconsin and Iowa. Workers at the Racine, Wisconsin and Burlington, Iowa plants initiated the strike today. One spokesperson says they're in pursuit of better wages and retirement and fair work rules. Reuters reports that a six-year contract agreement for both facilities expired on Friday. The strike follows other actions recently taken by members of the United Auto Workers. It also follows the international celebration of workers' rights yesterday, known as May Day. Dane County is suing several companies that have manufactured firefighting foams containing PFAS since the 1960s. The county claims the defendants knew the damaging effects of PFAS on the liver, kidneys, and nervous system since the 1980s. The foam continues to be used at airports and military bases due to its effectiveness at extinguishing liquid fuel fires, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The ruling right now is on hold until June 6th. That's according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Also coming from the Wisconsin State Journal, more than 10,000 people attended the annual Bacchanal known as the Mifflin Street Block Party on Saturday. The unofficial annual event this year was the site of a second-story porch collapse, sending two people to the hospital. The event also saw 45 arrests and one transport to the Dane County Jail. The block party came amidst a busy weekend in Madison. We had the Crazy Legs Classic, congratulations to the WORT volunteers who finished the race, and there was also a right-wing rally for election integrity. We'll have a report on that second event later on in the show. The Madison Metropolitan School District has received 42 name proposals for renaming Thomas Jefferson Middle School, according to the Capital Times. The first formal request to rename the school came back in February at a school board meeting. Proposal submission opened for the public on March 7th and concluded on April 8th. Some proposals included keeping the name or simply shortening it to Jefferson Middle School. Others submitted figures connected to the late president, such as Sally Hemings, who was one of Jefferson's slaves and mother to some of his children. Name proposals also included honoring Steve Irwin, Maya Angelou, and Dwight D. Eisenhower. Honorable virtues and local heroes were also proposed. Madison Alder Christian Alburas of District 20 has renounced his resignation from the council, effective May 20th at noon. Alboras shared in a press release that he and his family are relocating out of the Meadowwood neighborhood area. Alboras was initially elected in April 2019 and re-elected two years later. He has served on multiple boards, including the Economic Development and Public Safety Review Committees. Alboras follows the early resignations of two other city alders this year, including Lindsay Lemmer and Syed Abbas. Department of Natural Resources volunteer Ben Redding and his children found a rare population of fern while hiking last summer in Sauk County. Redding's findings are a of the rare maidenhair spleenwort has the region's first sighting of the fern in over 90 years. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that the DNR relies on volunteers like Redding to help monitor 5,000 rare plant populations. The DNR uses the data to assess populations and conservation efforts for species. Redding recommends volunteering because it raises awareness of habitat preservation and provides opportunities to explore the Wisconsin landscapes and wildlife. And now, on to today's top stories. 
students at Madison's East High School staged a walkout today in solidarity with Voces de la Frontera, calling for immigration reform on day two of the Day Without Immigrants. WORT producer Nate Weggehout was at the Capitol earlier today. Days Without Latinx and Immigrants is a two-day general strike across Wisconsin, which began yesterday in Milwaukee and continued today at the state capitol. Hundreds of students and community members gathered to call for two major reforms here in Wisconsin. The first, access to driver's licenses. The second, in-state tuition for undocumented immigrants at UW schools. Grisel Rodriguez is a member of Voces de la Frontera. She says that both of these issues directly affect students here in Madison. We know that there are students out there that don't have a social security number um, and are undocumented who are you know, prepared to go to college and they just can't go because they really can't pay the tuition, you know, like the out, um, uh, um, out-of-state tuition, which is the, the price is really high. So we want to make sure that they know that this is real. Like, you know, students are living this day by day. I know that some of them are going to be graduating this year. They already applied to colleges. They have been accepted, and now they can't go because they cannot afford it. In 2006, the state legislator enacted a law that barred undocumented immigrants and anyone without a social security number from obtaining a driver's license. Speaking at today's events was Mandela Barnes, current state lieutenant governor and candidate for U.S. Senate. He spoke about the actions his administration has taken to address both of these issues. And that is why for two consecutive budget cycles, the governor has proposed driver's licenses for everybody. The governor has also proposed in-state tuition regardless of immigration status. That is a clear and unequivocal statement that if you live here, if you call Wisconsin home, you are a Wisconsinite. Rodriguez says that today's events also targeted national issues as well. It's abolishing the 287G, which is one of the bills that had been talking about where a police officer has the could have the power to ask for your immigration status. So basically, like, 287G will allow, you know, any agency to ask for your immigration status. And, you know, they could just report you to... Eight counties in Wisconsin currently follow 287G, including Brown, Fond du Lac, Marquette, and Waukesha counties. The floor of the state capitol was packed with people, young and old, calling for immigration reform. I spoke with some of the students and community members about why they were there. I'm Benji, Benji Ramirez. And uh, why are you out here today? I'm out here to support my students. My students are incredibly passionate and incredibly informed, right? A lot of people look at kids they call them kids because they, they they think that they don't know anything but they watch the world they take the world in and they are very very aware of the things that are happening and so when there's an injustice to their family and injustice in their community they rise up they rise up and so i came out here to support them and their calls for justice well our students we work with primarily latinx high school students um, and some of our students are undocumented Others have family that's undocumented. And so that is a fear that is such a potent fear 
to have your family ripped apart at any minute due to circumstances that are completely out of your control. And so instead of giving into that fear of succumbing to the fear, students took action because they understand that their voices are so powerful. In this building, when 200 student voices show up in this building, things happen, right? And so that's why they came. They came for their families. And uh, just what's your name? Uh, my name is Gabby. Gabby, and uh, what year in school are you? I go to East High School. I'm a senior. Senior? And uh, why are you here today? I'm here because it's a big struggle for me and my family. My family's uh, basically, um, they're all immigration. Um, they immigrated here when, like, maybe my mom's been here for a couple years now, 20 years maybe, and it's a really big struggle, especially more, especially more when ICE comes here, it has a really big impact on me and it really scares me for my mom's safety, so I come to protest for her. What's your name? Um, I'm Mary Angelis. Real quick, can you tell me, uh, what year in school are you? I'm currently in East High School. Uh, I'm a sophomore, so I'm in 10th grade right now. All right. And uh, what are you guys doing here today? Okay, today we're protest protesting for immigrants. Uh, yesterday was the Asin Latinos, which is like a worldwide thing where immigrants don't go to work to show how much of an impact we make. Um, today we are protesting for licenses and for our rights, because most of the time our rights are taken away as immigrants. So yeah, that's what we're here for. I am an immigrant, but I am a citizenship since I am Puerto Rican. Um, I do know a lot of people who are not um, citizens, so it, I know the struggle. I know I have a lot of friends who are from Mexico, they don't have citizenship, so they're not able to do this or have the same things that I have because of the unfairness that is given out by this democracy where we're not given the same rights as uh, an American would. I would really like for our government to think about how we're all humans and we all deserve the same rights. Rodrigo. And uh, what year in school are you? Uh, East High School, 10th. 10th? And uh, why are you here today? Uh, I'm an immigrant myself. I, was, I came here from Mexico when I was uh, eight years old and I'm just helping my people get licenses. Uh, I experienced a lot of um, racism, per se. Uh, my parents uh, keep struggling to get jobs and uh, licenses for cars and stuff. So, yeah, I'm just hoping they stop blocking licenses and uh, in-state tuitions for people, for immigrants. Like Today was day two of Days Without Latinx and Immigrants General Strike as part of the National Day of Action for the Immigrants' Rights Movement. Yesterday, families and allies marched from Milwaukee's south side to the downtown office of Senator Ron Johnson. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Over the past two years, lawmakers have established several pandemic response housing and social aid programs. But a new report finds those programs have failed to make long-term changes, and Wisconsin's lowest-income renters still are facing a shortage of affordable housing. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Despite two years of government initiatives designed to provide financial aid and support to housing insecure residents, Wisconsin still is facing a shortage of affordable housing. A new report from the National Low Income Housing Coalition finds the state has just 34 affordable and available rental homes for every 100 extremely low income households. Brad Paul with the Wisconsin Community Action Program Association says pandemic aid programs, while important resources for housing insecure Wisconsinites, largely failed to address underlying systemic issues. The housing crisis that's described in this report and elsewhere certainly got put into overdrive during the pandemic. 
but existed before the pandemic. And so it's a pretty safe bet to assume that once we're through this unique moment, that we're going to still be faced with a housing crisis. Paul says it's up to lawmakers to help close the affordable housing gap by investing in more affordable housing and other structural changes. In the meantime, he says the Wisconsin Help for Homeowners initiative can help folks meet their overdue housing costs. Several counties, municipalities, and local organizations also have their own local housing aid programs. Paul contends this is a crisis with essentially two components, availability and affordability. Per the report, of Wisconsin's 187,000 extremely low-income renter households, nearly three-quarters spend more than half of their earnings on housing costs. It really takes a report like this and and some others that say, yeah, housing's expensive for everyone, but boy, it's really intense at this ELI, extremely low-income level. A separate report from the National Low-Income Housing Coalition finds, on average, a person would need to make nearly $18 an hour to afford a two-bedroom apartment in Wisconsin, nearly three times the state's current minimum wage. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.20 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The Henry Vilas Zoo is one of the last free zoos in the country, operating under the funding of Dane County and community donations. But after the zoo's only two black zookeepers quit, the chair of the Dane County board says that he fully supports a full independent investigation into the management of the zoo. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Lucas Robinson, reporter for the Wisconsin State Journal. He also wrote two articles outlining the conditions faced by the two zookeepers, as well as animal neglect at the zoo. Uh, So, Lucas, the topic of your newest article is the newest Dane County supervisor, Patrick Miles. Uh, He says that he supports an investigation into the management of the Henry Vilas Zoo. So let's start off with some background. What's going on over at the zoo? Why is he supporting an investigation? What is he looking into? Uh, yeah, so uh, we at the State Journal did a story uh, about a week or so ago about uh, two black zookeepers who uh, quit the zoo in the past couple months. Uh, and in their exit interviews, which I got copies of, they said that they experienced racism at the uh, hands of uh, zoo management. Uh, and as a result of that, they were things like unequally disciplined, uh, lack of opportunity, and uh, also uh, they uh, detailed number of animal welfare complaints the zoo had, uh, basically animal injuries and deaths uh, uh, due to the actions of zoo management. So as a result of that reporting, uh, Patrick Miles, who is the new Dane County Board Chair, said uh, that the board should consider uh, commissioning an independent uh, review of zoo management to uh, figure out uh, what exactly is going on there. And then so this is sort of in two parts, which is racism in the management area of the zoo and then also mm-hmm. what happened to the animals at some of the zoo. So let's start off with sort of the right. first one there. So can you go into a little bit of detail for me? Why did the zoo lose its t- only two black zookeepers? What were uh, what were they experiencing? 
Sure. Well, well, first off, it was uh, uh, Israel Knox, who used to be the head of the uh, Equal uh, Opportunity Office in Ingham County. Uh, he told me that they, uh, a couple of years ago, because conservation, you know, zoos, it's a very predominantly white field. Uh, and so they worked really hard to actually recruit, uh, you know, black zoo keepers there to uh, work there. And so, but kind of over the years as they worked there, they, um, Marley Mann, he uh, was assigned way much more work than uh, other employees and kind of as a result of that, you know, he would, you know, make mistakes. And as a result of that, he would be you know, disciplined far more. Um, for instance, there was an incident where he and another zookeeper who was white, they let a, my understanding, they the, uh, so they had a lie get too close to a tiger and the white zookeeper was basically just let go and even asked, you know, I should be you know, disciplined as much as Marley is, but they decided to, uh, Discipline Marley, who is one of the black zookeepers, uh, more. And uh, the, the another incident that came up through the documents and reporting I had is the deputy director of the zoo. His name is Joseph Darcangelo. He said in February 2020, you know, kind of the height of uh, a lot of racism against Asian people, he referred to an Asian restaurant using some sort of kind of, uh, Marley described it to me as a cartoonishly racist slur. And uh, so I think I... I think the heart of the racism issues at the zoo is unequal discipline, unequal treatment. You know, the black zookeepers felt that they were, you know, kind of snitched on, ratted out, um, just, you know, victim of microaggressions. They were just treated completely differently. And I think it's important to note that both of them have gone on to work at, you know, very popular, well-known established zoos in major U.S. cities. And then sort of on that topic, what have they been up to since they left? Uh, You said that they are at some pretty well-known and uh, well-regarded zoos in the nation. How have they been doing there as compared to uh, the treatment that they had at the Henry Vilas Zoo? Well, I think I think that's a really good question because uh, uh, Marley, he works in uh, Dallas now, and uh, kind of his long-term goal was to be able to work with, you know, large cats, you know, li- or just large, you know, kind of mammals. Uh, and in just a couple months at the Dallas Zoo, he has been promoted. He now works with, uh, I think, lions and like uh, uh, hyenas or something like that. And he kind of said to me that it's a night and day difference. You know, just in just a couple months, he was moved up to, to like finally his like dream field, so to speak. And uh, so, yeah, I think I think it just goes to show that, you know, people who are talented and dedicated to animals, they in just a matter of months after leaving Madison, uh, you know, their talent, you know, their dedication was recognized and they, you know, got to move up and do what they actually wanted to do. So I think, and then, as I said earlier, Marley, you know, he was having, being overworked essentially and just in, uh, so I think it just shows the difference between how he was treated in Madison and how he's uh, treated at this new job. And then sort of the second topic of your first article there is on the animal neglect at the zoo. Can you sort of go into some of the details about what was happening in that regard? Well, yeah. So the, there were a number of, there were a number of animal welfare complaints that didn't even make it into the story. There were so many. So I just kind of, kind of chose what I thought were the most significant. Um, And the way it was explained to me is that it was the decisions of zoo management that just kind of, you know, not neglect, but just kind of coming up with things that maybe didn't work out so well. So for instance, the uh, Beth Peterson, who is the general curator, they have, you know, raccoons that get into the zoo. It's in the middle of Madison. So, you know, naturally you have invasive species like that. 
And instead, she decided instead of trapping the raccoons in like, you know, like a metal trap like you would, she was going to put Epsom salts out because she had read somewhere that it, uh, you know, keeps raccoons away. It didn't work. And ultimately, a raccoon got into a penguin enclosure and decapitated a penguin. And uh, there were other things. Uh, they introduced um, birds to like an aquarium and the birds just ultimately drowned. They introduced a uh, hornbills to a meerkat exhibit and uh ultimately one of the hornbills died they don't know how but it was also eaten by a meerkat after the fact uh there were issues with uh this wasn't in the story but uh there were uh goats that uh had they basically needed someone professional to trim the goats hooves and zoo management kind of declined to uh you know hire someone to actually do it properly and ultimately a goat had to be euthanized because his hooves had just gotten, you know, kind of beyond repair. So they elected to uh, euthanize it. So I think the big takeaway is that through the decisions of zoo management, ignoring what the employees tell them and recommended, uh, they just made decis- decisions that led to the deaths or injuries of animals. And Lucas, do you have just any final thoughts on any of this that you'd like to share with me? I think it's just important to consider how Dane County uh, treats and approaches uh, complaints against uh, the higher-ups and the people that you know, are in positions of power in the county. I think, it, I think that's why Miles ultimately wants to do this investigation. And if you look at what he said, he said that the way the Office for Equity and Inclusion uh, approaches employee complaints should be potentially a part of the investigation into the zoo. So I think I think the county just has some reckoning and kind of, you know, work to do as far as how, you know, the people of color that actually work for it are treated and how, uh, you know, their voices are heard and uh, taken seriously. I've been talking with Lucas Robinson, reporter with the Wisconsin State Journal, about his articles on the alleged racism at the Henry Vilas Zoo. You can read both of his articles online at Madison.com. Lucas, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me here today. Yeah, thank you, Nick. Good being with you. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Forward Lookout looks at all the meetings happening around Madison and Dane County this week. Far-right protesters head to the state capitol to protest the 2020 presidential election and two new movie reviews. But first, we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. We'll be right back. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Sam Swartz. Thanks for joining us. Election security, bookmobiles, and zoo investigations, oh my. On this week's Forward Lookout, Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan review all the meetings happening around Madison and Dane County this week. (laughs) 
All right, it's Monday, and that means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. We'll start with Dane County. On Wednesday, uh, we have, I believe this is a new committee at 2 p.m. virtual. Uh, we have the Dane County Election Security Review Committee. So I'm sure uh, Clerk McDonald will have a big smile on his face during this thing. Yeah, unfortunately, when I looked this morning, there was no agenda. There may have been one that got uh, sent out today, but I did not see an agenda in there. So I can't hmm. tell you what they're going to talk about. Um, was it rigged? There were no meetings, <laughs> were no meetings Monday or Tuesday. So, you know, there's not, not a lot to talk about this week. There's just a few meetings in both the city and the county. Yeah, well, why is that? Why? What? What's going on? Uh, the holiday, last day of Ramadan, was oh, okay. the reason why the council meeting got rescheduled. I'm not sure if that's the same thing at the county or not. Okay. But the Board of Health is meeting 5 p.m. on Wednesday. Uh, that's a Madison and Dane County uh, meeting. So they'll get a COVID update. Any, anything else worth um, noting? They do have a resolution I'm kind of curious about. It says supporting the reasonable regulation of firearms. And I know that this is preempted at the state, but it sounds like they're going to try to do something. Um, they must have found some way they think they can legally maneuver around that to, to try to pass something. I'm not entirely sure hmm. what it is. So that might be interesting to, to look into. Um, there's also some, um, they're buying some equipment. They have some money that they're accepting some funds for lead in water testing remediation project for childcare facilities. And then they are also um, looking at the violence prevention RFP concept paper. Um, so um, that's usually like the precursor to what kind of programs they want to fund for violence prevention. 7 o'clock Wednesday, the Personnel and Finance Committee is meeting virtually, and they will be electing a chair and vice chair. So this is an important county committee. Um, what else? Um, they did have a whole bunch of routine items. It's kind of, um, you can tell that it was a county board changeover, a lot of uh, just routine, boring items. There is a few things that might be of interest. Um, there's an affordable housing project at 2206 University Avenue. Um, and then there's the stipend for certain employees at Badger Prairie Healthcare Center. Mm -hmm. um, and then they are giving some more money to Second Harvest Food Bank. And they are looking at a feasibility study for an indoor sports facility. Um, this is something that the Sports Commission is looking at. So um, there weren't, wasn't a lot of details. There's only $15,000 to look at the study, though. Well, somebody should probably tell this new election security review committee, even though I think it has more to do with perhaps cyber attacks and stuff. But the Board of Canvassers is meeting remotely, uh, virtually at 10 a.m. on Thursday. So they're doing what they usually do, right? Uh, an audit where I, I believe they kind of randomly select a couple races and they they make sure everything's on the up and up. They do. Um, usually it's one city of Madison and one um, outside the city of Madison district. Um, they are going to be looking at the county board supervisor race for uh, seat number 36, which is the town of Cottage Grove, and it has six wards there. And then they're looking at the Madison Metropolitan School District seat three. Um, and so they'll be looking at that in ward 73. Okay. And then um, we do have a library board meeting at noon on Thursday, um, but uh, it looks like kind of routine items there. The bookmobile team will be giving a presentation and then they're going to be doing some library standards, a report on that. Um, but let's, uh, Brenda, what I want you to talk about is the executive committee of the Dane County Board um, and then the full county board meeting. So the executive committee meets at 530, followed immediately by the county board meeting at 7. They did have, again, a lot of routine items. The executive committee at 530 will be talking about a, 
uh, equity food program for 2022. Mm -hmm. And then they are also looking at, and this is one of the things that Chair Miles um, in his announcement of who got appointed to which committees pointed out that he really wants to make sure that they look at management and equity concerns at the zoo. Um, so they'll be discussing that. At seven o'clock, the full county board will be meeting. Um, they'll be hearing a lot of the items that were at the personnel and finance committee. Okay. And then they are going to be um, looking at, um, well, actually mostly just the personnel and finance yeah. committee were the that I pulled out of there. Um, but there is, um, you know, a, a whole bunch of other routine zoning items and other things. Do you think it's a little bit, uh, maybe a, a signal that of uh, perhaps a different tone by the the county board leadership we have uh supervisor patrick miles is was just elected the new chair but that they are you know maybe uh looking into uh management which um particularly at the zoo but is that different than maybe in the in the past when uh you know the county board and the county executive's office seemed to be pretty simpatico yeah you know this is one of those things where um i think the county executive's office joe Parisi, was pretty much told the county board hands off you can't touch anything management I have all the control and power there and and the, the, he was backed up by the um, court counsel which is the attorney uh, for the county um, so yeah looking into this is sort of maybe stepping on toes but yeah it could be a sign of, of that things may be a little bit different and we may actually be seeing some um, of what really goes on in county government if if they start um, maybe having some more public disputes about things. And let's move on to the city of Madison. Um, we have the Equal Opportunities Commission that is already in progress. Their executive committee meets tonight. Now they're looking into a couple of things that just may be of interest to folks. Um, they'll be looking at uh, the BRT, the um, Bus Rapid Transit Metro Redesign, um, and, and following up from some of the discussion they had about that at their April meeting. Um, and then they are looking at um, the WS, uh, the Wisconsin State Journal Editorial Board and reporting bias. Um, so they're gonna have a discussion about discrimination there. Um, and then they are also going to be looking at housing issues in Madison, which they do on, on almost every single agenda. Yes, and then um, at 6 p.m. Wednesday, we have a notice of a possible quorum of the Board of Park Commissioners, the Common Council, and the Golf Subcommittee. So you, you, me and Brenda have a well-known bias against golf, but what are they talking about? Uh, Glenway Golf Park, um, they're looking at some of the improvements that are going to be there. Um, so they're looking at their programming plan as well as potential improvements to the clubhouse. How to improve a golf course. Put some affordable housing on it. Exactly. Right. All right. Thursday, uh, the Mass and Central Business uh, Improvement District is meeting uh, at noon, but they don't have an agenda. So maybe they should do they that. They don't. Neither does the Community Development Block Grant that meets at 5.30 or the Affirmative Action Commission that meets at 5.30. So uh, there was not many agendas. Um, and then the Madison Public Library, which does have an agenda, which is meeting at 5 o'clock, they really didn't have a whole lot there. It's mostly reports that they're going to be getting. Okay. Well, I guess we'll forgive the clerk's office this one day because I believe it's Municipal Clerk Day. Usually it's not the clerk's office. Oh, it's, it's not? Oh, God. Themselves. I'm so sorry. Who is doing it then? Usually it's the committees themselves that have not gotten their agendas oh. to the clerk's office. So the clerk's office can't publish something they don't. Well, what a good opportunity then. I'm very sorry <laughs> to every municipal clerk out there for uh, so it's not the clerk's office. Uh, that makes sense that it isn't because they exist to assist and they live up to that <laughs> moniker. 
They pretty much do. Yes, yes they, they do. do. All right. Well, um, Brenda, uh, it's always fun talking to you. And if you want to check out what's happening this week in local government, just head on over to forwardlookout.com. And uh, there are lots of convenient resources for, for you to check in um, with what city officials are talking about this week, as well as the county. So thank you, Brenda. You're welcome. As labor organizing is on the rise from Amazon to Starbucks, feature contributor Harry Richardson interviews ethnic studies slash CRT professor Tim Messer-Cruz about the story of May Day and its connection to today. This week's The Past Isn't Past is a continuation of their conversation last week. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. Can you talk to us briefly about the Haymarket Affair and its importance for today? In the spring of 1886, first weekend in May, which is today recognized as May Day, and the events centered on the vast McCormick Ironworks in Chicago. Probably at that moment in time, it might have been the largest industrial firm in the country, employing thousands of people, and it became a center of organizing for the eight-hour day. Workers there had gone on strike for the eight-hour day for a, for a new contract. The labor unions in Chicago, especially the revolutionary socialists, made that a center point of their own organizing and their plans. And so on May 3rd, the Revolutionary Socialists set up a series of speakers outside the McCormick Works as a fight broke out between union workers and scabs. The police intervened, gunfire erupted, and a number of workers were shot, as were some police officers, by the way. This event on May 3rd leads uh, some of the leaders of the Revolutionary Socialists to call for a protest meeting of the police brutality at the McCormick plant the following day on May 4th. That protest was uh, a very unusual protest. It took place in an area that had not been the scene of protests in the past. It was not the customary place that workers generally held their rallies and their marches. It was also unusual in that it was rather poorly attended. But it wasn't unusual in that the police really tried to break it up. A phalanx of several hundred police marched into Haymarket Square, where the protesters were gathered around a wagon, and they ordered the protests to disperse. And while that was being done, some unknown person from a nearby alleyway threw a bomb into the center of the police, killing some of the police, including Officer Matthias Deegan, uh, almost immediately. Um, others lingered for several days from their bomb wounds before succumbing. When the bomb went off, it became a, a firefight between the police and some of the protesters. We don't know how many protesters were involved in firing, but we do know that certainly some of the police officers who died that night died of gunshots as opposed to bomb wounds. A number of the labor protesters were also killed. Some of the victims of the police gunfire were secretly buried by relatives or friends who feared prosecution. But we do know that in the end, uh, seven police officers died that night. The criminal justice system in Chicago dragged the city for all the anarchist leaders. Ironically, in the end, the most likely suspect actually escaped the police dragnet, Rudolf Schnaubelt, the most likely bomb thrower. But uh, he was never arrested. Uh, he fled the city and instead eight 
anarchist leaders were picked up and charged with conspiracy murder in a year-long legal proceeding, which didn't end until uh, November 1887. Seven of them were condemned to death. Two of them were sentences were commuted by the governor to life in prison. One of them committed suicide in prison. And eventually, four men were executed by the state of Illinois in November of 1887, ending this saga. So that became the movement to try and save the accused anarchist leaders, became an international cause, one of the first worldwide legal defenses of any accused labor leader. And for that reason, of tremendous importance for the further development of the labor movement in terms of its thinking of itself as an international movement. But it also had negative consequences, too. In the wake of the bombing, the American Federation of Labor turned in a more conservative direction. Uh, It would not sponsor a national mobilization like the eight-hour day movement again until well into the 20th century. It would shy away from any kind of direct confrontation with uh, the forces of the state. And also in the wake of the Haymarket riot and bombing and trial, this probably served as the coffin nail of the Knights of Labor. The Knights of Labor membership plummeted and never recovered, as well did for a generation revolutionary socialism in America. The fierce reprisals against the labor leaders in Chicago certainly chilled the entire movement in the country. Can you comment on the meaning of May Day for today? Well, I think it connects in this way. Workers were really not upset about any one issue. It wasn't just wages or hours or working conditions. It really was that the rapid pace of change, the unpredictability of life, the insecurity that they lived in was intolerable. And so dreaming of an entirely different world was necessary. Things could go in many different directions. The parallel to today is I think we're living in another one of those times. I think more than maybe at any time in the past century, we are now living in a very liminal, chaotic, transitional time. And none of us know in what direction it's going to go. And all we know for sure is that whatever paths and whatever routines and whatever institutions have led us to where we are now, they're probably not going to be the same going forward. I get that same feeling now, I think, especially among among younger people who are really kind of right in the jaws of this change. It's becoming unbearable. Who knows how that's going to play out, but I think in some ways our current moment parallels that of the 1880s. Over the weekend, a rally took place on the state capitol steps, bringing together right-wing activists and conspiracy theorists from around the state. WORT producer Nate Weggehout braved the rain on Saturday to speak to those in attendance. This is a shortened version of Nate's piece on the rally. You can listen to the full story online at wortfm.org. As thousands of college students gathered to party on Mifflin Street just a few blocks away, around 100 Donald Trump supporters gathered at the steps of the state capitol building Saturday for a Stop the Steal rally. The United We Stand, We the People rally had one major theme throughout, a call for Assembly Speaker Robin Foss to step down over his comments that it was illegal to decertify the 2020 presidential election. Several legal memos have affirmed Foss's comments that it is, in fact, illegal to decertify the election results. Several court cases also found that there was no significant voter fraud in Wisconsin and that Biden won the state of Wisconsin by around 20,000 votes. The rally began at around 2 in the afternoon as the truckers' convoy met the group at the Capitol Square to honk their horns and show their support 
support for the rally. I counted one truck and around four sedans in the massive convoy, which made several laps around the square. Children as young as four years old screamed in joy as cars with Let's Go Brandon flags drove by. There were several tables positioned around the corner of the Capitol Square where people could register to vote and sign signature nomination papers for those running for election this November. I started by talking with a group of women whose table did not seem to stand with any particular group. They were handing out packets of information regarding restricting abortion access in Wisconsin, voter fraud, and all of the rhinos, or Republicans in name only, who they took issue with. We're just here to fight for freedom and for to come against all the lies that everybody's telling us and bring out the truth so that we can have fair elections and, and just fair everything, fair news reporting, fair everything. And how did you guys hear about this event? Um, I, group here and I'm not through here. <laughs> and we're just um, we're for um, uh, we're for pro-life so we, we, we're against abortion we're for freedom to um, live how the Constitution says so okay. Next to the two women was Turning Point USA, a right-wing media outlet catering towards college students. A quick look at their YouTube page shows videos claiming President Joe Biden wants to hand children over to teachers, actress Megan Fox conducting blood rituals, and a talk with former President Donald Trump. Awesome. So tell me about your uh, group here. This is Turning Point Action. So this is a uh, group dedicated to trying to pursue conservative values in the political arena uh, and we are really trying to get out there and let people know that they don't just have to join the GOP but they can lead it uh, and so that's kind of what we're doing here today. As the rally began in earnest at around 3, a torrent of rain began to fall, setting the mood for the rest of the event. Brock Maddox began the event with a prayer, calling to protect those participating in the rally. Maddox is the rally's organizer and member of the right-wing organization Freedom Fighters of Central Wisconsin. We are here because we the people have the power. And together we will take back this country. We'll go right down the middle and reclaim this country together. This country belongs to us, and together we will abolish this illegitimate government and elect new leaders that will lead us with God, Constitution, and integrity. The event did not just attract right-wing activists. As the rain let up, I noticed two men stood on the Capitol Square holding Honk for Biden signs. Throughout the afternoon, many people approached the two to exchange words, though I did not hear what was said. But I could see that they were hesitant when I approached them, at least until I introduced myself. Hi there. I'm with WORT. WORT Radio. Yeah. Yeah, you mind uh, just talking with me for a minute about why you're out here? Oh, sure. Sure. So, oh, yeah, why are you out here? Well, this, uh, the protest united, we stand, we the people. Um, it's kind of more of the division uh, group that wants to divide the country rather than big, uh, bring the country together. Um, you know, they're saying, saying uh, Trump won the election yet, and... Uh, you know, it's just false information. So they're just spreading, continuing to spread the narrative that Trump won. And they're, I think they're trying to bring their candidates that they want to support that still say that kind of thing. You know, the narrative that Biden didn't win and the elections are corrupt and all this kind of thing. 
So that's why I'm really, uh, I'm out here just to say, uh, no, face the facts, Biden won, let's move on, let's let's work uh, what's good for this country instead of this kind of thing. I mean, all the money they're putting into this rally with their, their big, nice TV screen up there, and, um, you know, they're going all pro-America, and playing anti-war songs for their, their really their uh, pro-war demonstration, I think. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie Hout. Today's feature contributor, Harry Richardson, reviews a new documentary about California's latest water war. He also saw a classic western from 1966. He reviews both for this week's Monday Movie Review. The good news is there are many solutions for what we need to be doing. We have the money, we have the institutions, we have the brain power to solve our water problems. And we haven't solved them yet, but if we can't solve them here... It's going to be difficult to think about how we're going to solve water challenges around the world. That was clipped from the trailer for River's End, California's latest water war, written and directed by Jacob Morrison, a good investigative report of the use and misuse of the state's water. Morrison uses the usual talking heads, professors, environmentalists, corporate farmers, small farmers, and executives of the powerful Westlands Water District. California is on the verge of a water crisis, but California could also show the way to a better future for other areas facing similar problems. Conversely, if California can't solve its problems with its vast resources, who can? The problem is that corporate farming, primarily of almonds and alfalfa, sucks up 80% of the state's water, leaving only 20% for the people in the cities and towns. The climate crisis which has brought on intense droughts and fires, has only exacerbated the problem. There are also huge factory farms of cattle, 1.7 million cows statewide. Oil and natural gas drilling also use a lot of water and discharges dirty water into aquifers. Bottled water is also a big industrial user. Delivering all this water is a complex system of 1,400 dams, the most complicated water system in the world. The water must be transported long distances from the Northern California Sacramento Delta, an inland freshwater estuary where the state's major rivers converge with the Pacific Ocean. Two-thirds of the state's residents get their water from the Delta. The other major water provider is the Colorado River. Unfortunately, this system was designed for a period of unusually wet weather in California, not the situation for the foreseeable future. Morrison explains the key role of the Westland Water District of Central California, which oversees much of the water to almond agribusiness. This $50 billion industry, which uses over 1 million acres, exports most of their product. 80% of the world's almonds come from California. Ironically, Westland's Water District, the largest irrigation district in the country, is the nation's poorest congressional district. Over 1 million people in over 130 communities lack access to clean drinking water, according to a recent piece by David Bacon in The Nation. The water overuse has led to much habitat destruction. There are now six endangered species in California, including sturgeons and Chinook salmon. The delta smelt, once the most common fish in the whole state, is likely extinct. The film was shown as part of the UW-Madison's Haven Center Social Cinema Series. There was also a good talk sponsored by the center last week, featuring Jennifer Boley, a Native American activist Anishinaabe from northern Wisconsin, who spoke about their water issues and the fightbacks against Line 3 and the Line 5 proposed Enbridge Pipeline. Northern activists are forming a nonprofit. Lake Superior is not for sale. Mark Schalsberg of Food and Water Watch talked about his group's report 
California Drought, Big Ag, Big Oil, and California Big Water Crisis. Check out the Haven Center website for more information on the Social Sentiment Series and their important ongoing work. And now for something completely different, an old school western. It'd take a battalion at least a month, but a few daring men, specialists led by you, could do it in one bold, swift stroke. And that was a clip from the trailer for The Professionals, co-written and directed by Richard Brooks. The movie received three Academy Award nominations in 1966, including Best Direction and Best Screenplay. It's been compared to The Magnificent Seven, with each character bringing his own unique skill. A wealthy Texan, Joe Grant, Ralph Bellamy, gathers a huge ransom to pay feared revolutionary Jesus Raza, Jack Palance, for the return of his kidnapped spouse, Maria Claudia Cardinal. He hires the best mercenaries money can buy, held together by its leader, Lee Marvin, with explosives expert and ladies' man, Burt Lancaster, and experienced horse wrangler, Robert Ryan, and expert marksman and tracker, Woody Strode. If this film were made today, it would be recast giving Cardinal and Palance's role to Latinx people. They played the role in Darkface, not an uncommon practice in that period. A classic western well worth watching. It just started showing on Netflix. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Emily Flick. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show, Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Stay up to date with WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a great night.